E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Pierre Murray on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Well, but I'm happy to see that it's a seasonal weather, and uh, he's hoping for a great vintage like all the vintages in nine. With the exception of 1939 in the 20th century, all the vintages were good. So actually, the 1930s is when your father, August Moray, returned to the domain to work with his father, who was getting a bit ill at that time. Yes, my father left because he could not make enough money making wine in the family estate. He did make more money selling pharmaceutical products than uh, making wine. But at the time, my grandfather, his father, called him back and said that if you're not back soon, I'm going to sell everything. And the virus of winemaking just took over. So at the time where uh, my father came back, I think my grandfather had maybe five hectares. However, there was an opportunity that arose to take over a métayage from the Domaine des Comtes Lafont. But we did not get the métayage all in one lump. It came bit by bit. The first parcels that they got were uh, Marceau Labarre, not Clos de Labarre, Genevrière, Perrière, and Charme. And uh, Moranchet only came much later, around 1964. The only things that the actual Moray family owned at the time was just uh, regional appellations, Merceau, White, and Red. And uh, the pinnacle was uh, Merceau des Tessons at the time. Unfortunately, my father bought too little, at least to my taste. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of investment already going on uh, at Domaine Moray. There was a new tractor, uh, Enjambeur, the type that straddles the vineyards, which was fresh off the uh, building line. Bought a new electric press, a Vasselin, and um, he had just bought a house, so uh, he was covered in debt. In relation to the rest of the Cote d'Or, your father was a little ahead of the time when it came to equipment, both in the vineyard and in the winery. And these are things that you would have seen as a kid. Yes, I fondly remember a picture of myself as a kid under the new tractor en jambeur when my father bought it. But there were a few uh, predecessors. 
Michelot, uh, Rougeau, for example, who built their own with local artisans. As soon as they saw that there was a company that was going to put out a tractor that would have proper equipment, follow through uh, pieces uh, needed to repair it, and so on and so forth, he was the first one on the list to buy it. It was Maison Loiseau in Merceau. But unfortunately, he didn't have money at the time, so that there's two uh, Champenois who uh, came down and bought the two first tractors out of under him, and he got number three. Because the coincidence there is that the Loiseau factory that made the over-row tractors that you're talking about was based in Merceau, and so was your father. Oui, c'est ça, le, yes, uh, we were only about 500 meters away from the uh, factory. What was your father like as a person, and what was he like when you were growing up? My father was pretty severe, a patriarch, you could say, not in a military sense, but as I was the eldest, it was my duty to show the example to my uh, brother and my two sisters. My father got married in 1936-1937 and had a daughter, and immediately left for the war in 1939. He was made prisoner in uh, May 1940, was taken prisoner into Germany about 10 kilometers away from Poland in a very cold area there, and that's where he spent the war. He found out in 1942 that his uh, wife had passed, and it was allowed by the Germans for uh, people who had lost a spouse to uh, come back to France, but the uh, administrative details were very, very complicated, so it took till 1943 for him to come back. So he met my mother in the farm at which he would go get milk for the family, and I was born in 1948. What was Merceau like as a village at that time, in the 50s? What was it like? I was born in a house where there was no running water, no heat, no uh, bathroom, and the uh, outhouse was in the yard. And we still had ration uh, tickets coupons you could get goods with at the end of the war, and that lasted for a couple of years after. We lived at the very tail end of a street, and we got running water in 53. That probably helped with the vinification to have running water. It helped a lot of things. <laughs> Imagine cleaning a press at the time with a bucket of water that you went to get at the hand fountain 100 meters away. You had to walk 100 meters away to get running water. At one point, the members of the Lafon family wanted to sell the property, but René Lafon convinced them not to do that and to continue with the domain. Do you remember that period of time when there was talk of selling it? This happened when I was about seven or eight years old, and this was the point at which the family was in discussion of either selling or doing a métayage. They found an administrative way to put together the uh, property, which is called an SCI, and this is what permitted René Lafont to take charge and to keep the domain together. Of course, I often heard my parents talk about this because had there been a sale, it would have totally changed what we were doing on the domain since we had the metayage. 
one, we lived in a house that was owned by the Lafons, and uh, they might have told us to go take a hike if they sold it. And the second of all, uh, the uh, most prestigious wines uh, we had in our cellar came from the Metayage that my father had with Lafon. What are your memories of working with your father in the vineyards and in the winery? Alors, à la vigne, uh, my la, la... childhood memory of uh, working the vineyards was during the vacations, we would prune. Easter vacations, we would do canopy management and uh, tie branches to the trellising. We couldn't do the debudding because that needed a little bit more uh, experience. However, we did the canopy management, like bringing the, uh, the wires up to uh, bring the canopy in, uh, neatly into the row. And it's really beautiful to see a vine that's properly done. Of course, there was no equipment to mechanically do uh, the uh, top canopy management, cutting off the head of the vine. So we did it by hand with my brother, with those large scissors, and it was a little bit of a race between him and me. I wonder if that means that people trimmed less back then. Ah oui, nous commencions à rogner. Yes, at the time, uh, we did that much later. Today, with the mechanization and the tractors that we have and the equipment, leads to multiple canopy managements. And people start often way too early in the cycle before flower, and that hurts the vine. So at the time, uh, vinification was very classic. It was just pressed. However, uh, there was no triage at the time, so uh, even if there was botrytis on the vines, that would go onto the press. At the time, you could relatively easily ask pickers to uh, get rid of the botrytis and do a triage in the vineyard. It's much more complicated today with what you can ask and not ask a picker to do. The one thing that he did take great care in is when he decanted the juice in order to choose what he was going to use for actual vinification. So he's saying that there was less sorting at that time because this was before sorting tables for grapes in the winery but that he was very careful with what would be called débourbage, which is the settling of the juice and the leaves. So this is something he paid a lot of attention to. Absolutely. Uh, no. At the time, there wasn't an oologist coming every five minutes trying to sell you some kind of product that was going to accelerate the débourbage or uh, facilitate this particular débourbage or that particular débourbage. We basically left the uh, juice in tank overnight. And, of course, we did it less... If the vintage warranted doing it less, we did it more. If the uh, vintage warranted doing it more. And then we chose the juices that we would bleed off to make the wine. I didn't change much. We pretty much uh, stayed true to what was being done at the domain before. I continue doing batonnage because if it's well done, it's necessary for the wine up till Christmas. And um, if you decant too much and you do not leave enough lees, you put it in the barrel and it's very clear wine and there's nothing to baton, there's nothing to actually stir. That can be dangerous, but he doesn't think that it's one of the major causes of premox, for example. Did you end up going to school for vinification or did you learn mostly with your father? I went to school, but not enough to my liking. Right after high school, right after my certificate, I went into an agricultural school, which was both agriculture and viticulture. It was alternating. So uh, 
so many weeks in class, so many weeks on the farm. I did that for three years, and then that was it. You know, I was a strong lad, and my family needed the help, and uh, it was the time to come back and work for the family. Did you see differences between the Moray Genelo wines and the Lafon wines from the same parcels? Did you see differences resulting from the vinification? Yes, there were differences. When I had occasion to taste the uh, Lafon wines, which I didn't have that many occasions to taste, but I was able to taste them, I could see a stylistic difference between the wines from my family that were done on the same plots and the wines from Lafon done on the same plots. It had much to do with the élevage of the wines, whereas we didn't have much space. So basically, 12 months after uh, putting them in barrel, they were racked out and bottled, and uh, Lafon could continue sometimes 18 months, sometimes all the way up to uh, two or more years in barrel before uh, bottling, in exceptional cases. There was a difference, and it was fascinating. They were very different when they were young, the wines. But I might talk to Dominique and propose a uh, tasting of the same plots, 30 to 40 years, bottle age. In general, what did you see as the character of those different plots between Charme, Genevieve, Perrier, and then later Le Mans Rocher? When I used to uh, vinify all three, I would... Uh, tell my clients to start with the Charme, then you can open up your Genevrière, and then just hide the Perrier at the end of the cellar. The Charme could be considered the archetypal Merceau, which has a lot of grace, beauty, nuts, a lot of minerality, especially when it's produced towards the top of the vineyard. Genevrière has a lot of finesse. We often say that it smells of the flower of the vine, but definitely more notes of alcohol when they're on their youth. And Perrier, I don't really think Perrier belongs truly to Merceau in terms of archetype. It's very reserved when it's young. It takes a long time to develop, but uh, the minerality is uh, beautiful when it does. When I discovered the Puligny vineyards, when I worked with Lefebvre, especially Combet, I would offer up this suggestion that Combet actually uh, belongs to Merceau and uh, Perrier belongs to Puligny. Because actually there's just a small road that separates them. Oui. Hmm. The administration uh, probably uh, created boundaries there that weren't probably following terroir rules. They were more following topological rules. <laughs> what was it like with Le Maurecher as you started to farm and make that wine? We started working that vineyard in 1964, but it had been proposed in the late 40s, early 50s to my father to start working that vineyard, but it was too far to go with a horse. The wine was generous, was open, was fresh, was beautiful, uh, very complete, everything you want in a wine. And Moranchet uh, has never posed a problem uh, during vinification. And it just tastes great from young to very, very, very old. So it was terribly, terribly exciting. When I've been in La Maurice, I've seen that there are clusters that are mill randage, small clusters. And has that character increased over time? Because you have a lot of familiarity with La Maurice over decades. Was there less mill randage, say, in the 70s than today? 
Je crois que ça dépendait beaucoup du, mille, du, du millésime. It depends on the vintage, and it depends on the uh, date at which it flowers. You also have to note that there was already a vineyard close to 1500 years ago. So, depends on the year. Moachet is much less productive than Batard, for example, which is right down slope from Moachet. Even though it's a warm terroir, and it's a terroir that's generous, it's still much less productive. So sometimes people say that Moachet holds on to its freshness, to its acidity, even when it gets ripe. Did you find that? Oui, c'est une observation que j'ai faite. I've always noted in this, since I started, that The Grand Cru's, Batard Moachet and Moachet, always have a higher degree in alcohol and a higher degree in acidity, much more so than in Merceau. So I always thought that that was the definition of white Grand Cru. And um, when I started working uh, Carton Charlemagne, I saw that, oh no, this is uh, not necessarily true. The degrees in alcohol were uh, lower in, in Carton Charlemagne. As you gradually took over and the domain became Domain Pierre Marais, and you started to do more and more of the farming of the Lafon parcels instead of your father as he went into retirement, what did you see as the differences between what maybe you wanted to do and what your father was doing? Basically, not much. We shared a cellar, we worked together in the same vineyards. Indistinctly, one or the other would be pruning each other's vines. The only difference is that once you got into the cellar, some casks were marked Pierre Moret and some casks were marked Auguste Moret. And it was like that all the way to the end. And what was the end? When did that end? Alors, il a pris une retraite en plusieurs étapes. My father retired in several stages. So I had the right, because he had gone through World War II, to take an early retirement before 65 years old. And that's the point at which he abandoned the uh, métayage of Comte Lafon in 1975. And my parents continued to work the vineyards from 1976 through the mid-80s. In 1984, they had to um, go under the value-added tax system, and they said, enough. And then after that, they would come and help us during the harvest, bottling uh, every once in a while, but, but really on their own time. In the 1980s, Dominique Lafon and Bruno Lafon came back to Comte Lafon and began to take it over from René Lafon, their father. I had a lot to do with Lafon's ever since they were kids. They all came and harvested in our uh, family vineyards. Of course, uh, that was followed by... Uh, Dominique, who started working with Becky Wasserman, and of course, because of the relationship we had with Becky Wasserman, he was always in the cellar tasting the wines as well, and so there was a lot of uh, exchange. When Dominique and uh, Bruno uh, came to me to announce that this was the end of the Menteillage, of course, a lot of emotion because the vineyards, the family that I'd been so close to and worked so closely with, but also, you know, it, It's also an economic shock for the family. Half of the wine that Domaine Pierre Marais made was from vineyards that were owned by Lafon, and they were going to take those back. Oui, en volume, uh, en volume, in volume, it was about 40%, but in uh, worth, it was way more. They did this in a very elegant manner. 
René Lafont, who was more or less semi-retired at the time, said, uh, we know that this is a hardship for you, so we're going to do this progressively. And they had the supreme elegance of the last vineyard that they took back was the Maraché. So there was uh, two years between the uh, announcement and uh, the first move, and then uh, another five years until all the vineyards had come back. And in between, uh, he had started another activity. And that activity was being the registrar for Domaine Le Fleuve. Oui, c'est ça. Uh, My first day at work at Le Fleuve was uh, 1st of September, 1988. At that time, it would have been run by Vincent Le Fleuve, who died in 93, as well as Olivier Le Fleuve. And then later, Anne-Claude Le Fleuve, who was Olivier's nephew, came into the scene. Vincent et Olivier étaient co-gérants. So yes, Olivier and uh, Vincent were co-CEOs of the domain who represented two different parts of the family. And then there was a board of directors on which Anne-Claude Le Fleuve was. How did that job come about? Je crois que... It was a relatively slow process since they were evaluating several people. There was actually a full year where I didn't even know if I was going to get the job or if I had any chance of getting it. The board of directors came in after two years and signed off on the choice. By this time, 1988, when you started at Domaine Lafleve, you had two children, Anne, who runs Domaine Pierre Marais today, along with your help, and then Guillaume, who is the younger brother of Anne. Oui, Anne est née en 1960. Yes, it was a marvelous time. It was very free. We were very happy. The uh, the market was just getting really interested in white Burgundy, and I had a beautiful range to offer up. Prices were going up a little by little, but not too much. It made everybody happy. So it was a very happy time at the time. So it was a good time to have two kids. Very good time. But Guillaume had some medical difficulties. He had some health issues. And when you took the job at Domaine Lefleve, you told them that you also needed time away from the domain to take Guillaume to the different tests that were necessary in Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't give Guillaume, who was born on the same day as me, only in 1980, uh, we realized after six months that he had a genetic condition, neurofibromatosis. So there's two uh, possible conclusions to this condition. One was he would just have sort of coffee-colored spots on his skin, and the other one much graver, much more dangerous. But they couldn't tell them if it was going to happen or not. We found out when the first scanners got to Dijon, when he was about two and a half years old, that he also had a tumor on the ocular nerve, the regional medical teams who were taking care of this decided that really this was a case to go up to Paris because they felt that they were not as well equipped. In 1983, uh, Guillaume had a first radiotherapy to try to stop this. We knew, however, that his eye was blind. So in 87, there was a development a problem right at the base of the neck. They had to have second series of radiotherapies. That's where we were at when we joined Lefebvre. But he also needed 
growth hormones because the uh, radiotherapy had stunted his growth. Basically, he had a normal life until 1991, with the exceptions that he had to go up to Paris often to have medical procedures performed or tests done. Until 91, everything went pretty well, but then after that, he had the development of that second tumor. He was starting to get itches and scratches uh, all over, and then uh, not feeling very sure on his feet. It was decided to have an operation. This was an extraordinarily difficult operation in the base of the neck. And after that, he was handicapped. So my wife stopped working so that she could take care of him 100%. This lasted until 1997 when his body gave out through the pressure of the maladies. This life experience that you had with the health of your son affected your thoughts about vineyard work because you were hesitant to trust chemicals that had been developed by scientists because you saw that even the best scientists and the best hospitals in the world were not able to help your son in a way that you would have liked. And so you started to distrust this idea that science had all the answers for nature. We were only using contact products on the vineyards. These products were diluted in water, they were sprayed on the vineyards, but at the first rain, they got washed away. In uh, 1970, we started to see penetrating products. So, for example, if you sprayed on the leaf, it would literally penetrate the leaf. It couldn't be washed off, and it was still acting on the plant. Only three years after that, then we started having systemic products which are sprayed on the vineyards and through the leaf literally make their way to the sap and follow the sap's flow back down into the rootstock. At first, we were, we were all amazed and happy to see that we had products that worked so well to uh, keep the vines so clean and free of any malady. So uh, that was short-lived. We started to see that these products preferred resisting plants. And after just a very short number of years, we started to see that the other ones were doing even worse than uh, they had done before. And we started to see that the products were maybe worse than the, uh, than the maladies themselves. So it's the same problem with antibiotics. Once you choose a class of antibiotics to uh, take care of something and a certain set of things you can treat with it, the next time around, you're going to have to take something stronger from a different family, and it's an infernal circle. So the 80s, the decade of the 80s, was for me a decade of reflection on how can we protect these vines without necessarily having recourse to uh, chemicals. The only people we saw coming to us with anything were basically chemical salesmen who uh, did not really want to think about your job and about what it was doing to the plant or anything like that. They wanted to make sure that they made the sale. Joining Leflev was really interesting for me because he thought that by joining one of the top white, the top white domain, 
in Burgundy, uh, he was going to find solutions. Because of who they were, they had the uh, best access to the, the best specialists. Consultants would come. They were always the best. And I had a lot of hope. I rapidly realized that the situation was worse than at home because not only did they have the best consultants, they were also the best salespeople. And the doses that they were using on the vineyards were the highest because they had literally been able to talk every single level of employee there to using the highest doses. The difference between uh, Domain Leflev and my domain is basically. At my domain, I was the decider and the person who did the work. At Le Fleuve, there was, of course, the vignerons that were working in the vines, but then there was a head vigneron, and then there was a régisseur, and then after that, there was a board of directors with the four different branches of the Le Fleuve family. So I, I didn't have answers. I had more questions. But there was a very happy moment when Anne-Claude started to talk to me about wanting to go organic or biodynamic. So we did our first try in 1990, 1991, with Claude and Lydia Bourguignon and Mr. Boucher, who helped us through the process. The idea, of course, of these tests were to produce drinkable wine. <laughs> produce enough of it so that the domain would continue to live. However, it was a revolution. In fact, this helped me tremendously because I did not have the time to engage the same tryouts in my estate. So I was very happy to be able to do this at Leflev. One of the main things about organic production is working the soil. So we had to learn how to till the soils again the way they used to be done. The 1991 campaign was a success, so it was decided that we would extend the tryouts to uh, all levels of Appalachian, because it was important to taste the wine side by side and see what the qualitative differences were between the regular production and this new production, because, of course, having beautiful soils is one thing, but what is of great interest to any domain is being able to sell the wines and having interest from the drinking public. Domaine Lefleve at that time controlled over 20 hectare vineyards in a number of different Premier Cru's and Grand Cru, and that allowed you room to do side-by-side trials because there was enough vineyard surface that you could try doing organic and then later biodynamic in one parcel and conventional in another and see what the results were. Oui, exactement. Uh... The first tryout at Domaine Lefleve was biodynamic and not organic. That came later. We were able to do parcels that were side-by-side, side, but not only side-by-side. Side, we used the same plant material, same data plantation, and so on, so that everything that could be identical would be. And um, I already was making moves on trying to get things separated so that we could see each style of each parcel. Right before he got hired, Vincent Lefleve said to him, if we hire you at Domaine Lefleve, it's to make Lefleve wine, not to make Moray wine. You understand that? And uh, he answered, well, what interests me is to make Clavoyon, Pucelle, Batard, great terroirs. 
during the 20 years you were at Domaine Lafleve, the chef de culture changed, right? Oui, effectivement, quand je suis arrivé. Michel Tussaud was head of viticulture at the time I joined the Domaine. Might have had some issues with what we were doing, but he retired rather rapidly. And then uh, we got Mr. Bido, who was already at the Domaine and already been working at the Domaine and did see for himself the changes that were happening and liked them and was a great partner. And so Anne-Claude Lafleve, where was she at in her thinking about farming when she arrived? Anne-Claude was part of the Domaine uh, Board of Directors since 86, joined the Domain as a co-CEO in 1990. And then uh, the seminal moment at which she got a great interest in uh, Biodynamie was during a, an open day at the Rateau cellar in Beaune. And she met also Claude and Lydia Bourguignon that day. So at the time, I knew nothing about biodynamics. Of course, once I started reading about this, I was extremely interested. And the tryouts started literally that year. The domain went fully organic by 92, and then it was biodynamic by 1997. En totalité, oui. Yeah, that's exactly it. 1992 for organic, and then uh, 97 biodynamic fully. So for two years, we conducted tests side-by-side, -side, chemical versus biodynamic. These tests lasted two years, and the choice was clear. So in my domain, I had stopped all herbicides earlier. I did not see any future for a chemical approach to viticulture. I had planned to go fully organic uh, 92-93, which I did. And Claude wanted to start at the same time, but her father was holding out. So, of course, I had passionate exchanges with Vincent Lefleve, who talked to me about his life in Indochina and in the United States. So one night he asked me, you know, Anne-Claude really wants to go uh, all the way organic. What do you think about it? What have you done in your domain? And uh, Pierre answered, well, we've already made the decision. Oh, so let's go. The next day, Vincent announced it to his daughter, who was extraordinarily happy for the decision. And then from uh, 92 to 97, they continued their tests, but instead of doing chemical versus biodynamics, they did organic versus biodynamic. And what were those two people like, Vincent Lefleve and then Anne-Claude Lefleve? As people, what were they like? Well, he couldn't be my father, but I would have loved to have him as an uncle. He was not a very tall or big man or anything. He was sort of medium build, but he had a way of carrying himself that immediately inspired respect. He had uh, had a previous career uh, as a salesman in the steel industry and uh, was very infatuated with stainless steel to the point where they replaced some... Uh, pickets in the vines with stainless steel. It didn't last very long. Anne-Claude was his first daughter. He had lived the life, as one says, for years and years, and he married rather late. And uh, he had a very special attachment to Anne-Claude. Anne-Claude was a, a really warm person and a really inviting person. And uh, 
we would have never been able to go that fast into biodynamics had she had not had a very early interest in nature and plants and uh, homeopathic uh, processes. And she was very curious, very multidimensional, somebody who had uh, a lot of different passions. And Claude, of course, left us rather rapidly. She chose not to take medication, which was part of her principles. Maybe it would have happened differently uh, had she had recourse to chemistry. But she didn't want to do that. She wanted to respect her choices all the way throughout. When you were doing microventrifications of crews, what did you learn about those crews? So we were able to progress really rapidly because we associated our head viticulturist to our tastings of each parcel, and he could taste the difference in the glass and immediately think of the place it was from, the plant material, and so on, and propose some necessary changes. So essentially, we would do things like modify the length of the pruning or the height of the pruning. And, of course, the debudding. You also started to prune and trim later in the year, right? To respect the uh, solidity of, of a vine, you need to respect its cycles. And, for example, pruning prior to all the leaves having fallen off the uh, plant is catastrophe. You need to work with the cycles of the vines, and this biodynamic approach permits you to pay more attention to that. You need also the sap to reflow down so that the plant keeps its reserves rather than cutting it off and letting it seep out. The Lafon Lamarche parcel and the Domaine Lafleve Lamarche parcel. How did you see those parcels as different in terms of farming and working them? It's quasi the same parcels because they were part of the same parcel uh, to start out with. Either in 1920 or 1921 is when this parcel went up for sale. And um, the parcel was cut in three lengthwise. The closest part to uh, Chassin Marché is La Font. The part in the middle is now Domaine de la Romaine Conti, but was not at the time. The next parcel was Fleurot La Rose, which then got subdivided into several different parcels, of which the parcel of Le Fleve is. So it's the same inclination facing south. The only difference is that it might be a meter or so higher in altitude on the Le Fleve part versus the Lafon part. Domaine Le Fleve purchased that parcel in 1991. Oui, le 18 juin, exactement. <laughs> yeah, the 18th of June was quite a sensation at the time because that was the first time a Puligny uh, domain picked Le Montrachet. At the time, there was no other domain in Puligny who actually picked Montrachet. It was not that simple to incorporate such a small piece of uh, Montrachet. It's 890 square meters. It's really tiny. Questions like, how are we going to press this? Because the presses are too large that we have. What are we going to barrel it in? Didn't know exactly how much it was going to produce, so they had to purchase a series of barrels that were of different sizes. But do you think they did well? Vincent Lefleve asked Pierre, Do you think it's really worth it 
that's such a small parcel of so much money. You work with the Moranche. Is it really worth it? Pierre answered, it's really a magical place. And you'll see that once you uh, start working with this wine, there's people that will be coming to you from the world over just to taste this. So your predecessor there as registrar at Domaine Lafleve had been Jean Viro, who had taken over from his father, Francois Viro. What was the style of the winemaking under Viro, and how did that change under you? The physical plants themselves are different between my domain and Lafleve. In uh, Puligny, as you know, there is no underground cellars. Everything is above ground. So there's a change right then and there of uh, the different types of wineries that you can use. And everything was, of course, cooled, but it wasn't an underground. So instead of the straight 12 months that Lefleve was doing at the time with a little bit of tank and then uh, bottling, I changed one little thing. We used to bring wines up to the domain small tanks and their small cellar for tasting purposes so that the CEOs could take clients tasting right then and there at the prestigious place. Well, at one point I started refusing to do that because it would permit me to do a little longer elevage like I was doing at Pierre Moret, which was more along the lines of 18 months rather than 12 months. So just to give an overview of the winemaking at the time, it would have been Dami Cooperage it would have been mallow in barrel, a bit of batonnage, and then it would finish in steel eight to ten months in steel, and then it would be bottled. Oui, c'est ça. Uh, je, je pense que mon arrivée a... So uh, François Viro was certainly doing more batonnage uh, than uh, Jean Viro. Um, Jean Viro, on the last three years of being at the domain, was not as involved, and he doesn't really know why. For whatever reason, it was not as involved. But there was a little bit less batonnage. What I did is I brought back a little bit more batonnage. And that would play into what you said earlier about being very careful about the settling of the lees, what is known as debourbage, because you were putting some of the lees into the barrel and you were doing a little batonnage. Not a ton, but some. We had very, very clean crops, and uh, this permitted us to get very, very clean and beautiful leaves. Not a lot of leaves, but they were very healthy. And you were using pneumatic presses, horizontal pneumatic presses. They had purchased those presses about four years prior to my arrival. Direct pressing and uh, pneumatic presses. The grapes were not destemmed for the whites prior to being put into the press. We did introduce at one point a small uh, grape crusher towards the end. For the last three, four years I was there, there was a grape crusher. And that permitted a slightly better ease of pressing in uh, years that had an abundant harvest. And as we mentioned, the wine spent uh, several months in stainless steel before bottling. It wasn't important for me. It was imposed by the situation. So in order to do a long élevage in a barrel, and if you decide to do that in the domain, you need at least two cellars so that you can switch from one year to the next and still leave wines in the cellar during harvest. 
this was not possible at Domaine Le Fleuve because a regular harvest would have been about 500 barrels. That means 1,000 barrels to house if you're going to do your long, long élevage. So the situation forced us, in a sense, to uh, go to stainless steel for longer periods. So he thinks that the reason, one of the reasons possibly that the gentleman, Mr. Vero, um, sort of was less engaged on the end of his career was because the uh, domain was growing tremendously, the amounts of wine was growing tremendously, and it was just not something he was terribly comfortable with. By the time I got there, they were in the midst of purchasing more and more vineyards. And at the time, on average, out of 18 hectares when he arrived, one was replanted every year, which makes a huge turnover. It also makes huge yields. And it was very, very hard to handle this big, big turnover. It's also to be noted that Puligny is more productive than Merceau, for example, and especially in the villages and the Bourgognes, which are very close to the water table. In Côte d'Or, Domaine Le Fleuve is now 25 hectares. Of course, there's a number of hectares down in the Maconnais that come and are added to this equation. So did you ever do initial fermentation in tank, in steel? Not just élevage, but did you do an actual fermentation in steel? On inox, jamais. So no, I don't do it in stainless steel. If I have to do it, I try to use another type of cuve. And I might have had recourse to doing that on small lots in 1988, where we had a very abundant vintage, but I don't recall exactly. And at Domaine Lefebvre, when I first got there, there were fooders. There was five or six different fooders, 45 hectoliters. There were two old ones, extremely thick, probably Hungarian wood, which were excellent and really had good taste. And then uh, Olivier had tasted a Ruy uh, done on a foudre, a new foudre, and had been terribly excited about it. And he and Anne-Claude decided to uh, purchase several foudres for the domain. But Pierre was never quite happy with the results in those fooders. He saw one or two harvests of Clavoyon and Pucel go through the fooders, and uh, he was shaking his head. So um, at his arrival, his first order of business was to make sure that everything was going to go through barrels, small Burgundian regular barrels. The real changes were first triage of the grapes, and second of all, the vinification of everything in barrel. And how would you handle malolactic? Since 1989, we've had a lot of very early vintages, and because the cellars are still rather warm, the malolactics have a tendency to start earlier. Did you see differences vinifying your own fruit in Merso underground than in vinifying fruit in Pulini above ground? For the alcoholic fermentations, there's a great advantage to uh, vinify above ground because uh, you can evacuate carbonic gas really easily. There's not much difference in the end, because uh, you have control over the temperature and the humidity, and they're very similar to uh, underground cellars. 
it's true that it's natural when it's in a uh, cellar underground, but it's controlled when it's above ground. Anne-Claude Lefebvre told me that 1999 was her personal favorite vintage. And I wonder if you might talk us through some of your favorite vintages over the 20 years that you were there. It's difficult for me to answer the question because obviously a large part of my tenure there was during the Primax years. 2006 was my last 100% my vinification. My bottling, I saw everything through from one end to the other. So 1999 was really the most accomplished first vintage following the introduction of biodynamics. I love 2000 and 2001. We had a tasting with the Lefleur family, and we had some 2006s, but they were uh, um, not very good. They definitely had issues. So he proposed comparative tasting because he had never experienced this. The tasting revealed that there was great differences between the two locations, some bottles coming from Moray and the others of the domains. The only thing he can cons- is that there might have been a humidity issue. And he did hear that some of the hygrometry uh, equipment had been uh, malfunctioning at the domain. But he still remembers a taster there that says, oh, when Lefebvre is good, it's very, very good. The difficulty is to be good all the time. What's really surprising is that we've had oxidation problems that had never occurred before. Why? I don't know. I can't answer it. And the uh, research that's being done by the BIVB uh, has not been published, and we don't have any answers yet. You could say, for example, maybe it's due to pollution, and that brought a residue that we are not accounting for at the particular time that has an influence on the wine and bottle. You know, air, a lot of car travel, so on and so forth. This is not something that really was as prevalent prior. It can come from uh, pollution from uh, the products that were used in the soil. Uh, There can still be some of those products in the soil, even people that have stopped using the products. And of course, there's a number that continue to use them. I'll just talk about Roundup, for example, which got here in 1979, was largely used throughout the vineyards in uh, the 80s, and uh, the first time it appeared in the water table was in 1998. It took 20 years to get there. We actually can test for Roundup in human urine all around agricultural areas in the world and find it. So it might be a cross-contamination, cross-pollution, something like that. That might be part of the problem. We're doing all the right work. We're being more and more rigorous, both in the cellars, at the vineyards. The bottling equipment has gotten way better. Uh, We're improving in all kinds of areas, trying to keep it as clean as possible. Yet, this still happens. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about your own domain, Domain Pierre Marais. 
where it actually seems like there's been very little Primox problem. He's very happy to know that there's not very many, but he still does find some every once in a while. And he'd be very happy to eliminate them if he could. So some of my favorite wines from Pierre Moray are Merceau Tesson, Merceau Perrier, and Volnay Santino. And I was wondering if we could speak about those terroirs for a moment. Oh, bien sûr, oui. <laughs> we can talk about the Tesson first, which is a marvelous vineyard, which is amazingly not a premier cru, even though Laval had classed it as a first-class site. You've got to look at history to find the answer here. The Tesson was mostly unplanted at the time, and that's why it didn't make it into the classification. We have to thank Giroulot because of his Clos de Mon Plaisir label. People are starting to put Tesson on the label again, which is really nice to see. The view is absolutely splendid from up there, and our ancestors had built afternoon shacks to spend the afternoon uh, outdoors from up there. So it's very well exposed, except it's slightly north-facing. So it's a very, very late harvest. You've got to pick this late in the harvest. It doesn't have the opulence of Terre Blanche or Goutte d'Or. However, the minerality is gorgeous and the length is superb. Perrier is a minerality plus plus. But you still have those slightly charred notes, tarfaction notes on the wines, which allows a lot of people to actually blind this wine, uh, even young. And I think it's the Merceau that has the best potential for laying down. Volnay Sontenot, which is actually in the Merceau commune, we had the marvelous opportunity to purchase a plot of Volnay Sontenot in 2003, and our first harvest is 2004. So these are often very powerful wines, even massive sometimes, but have extraordinary potential for aging. When people uh, would come to taste at the uh, Domaine, our two top red premier crews are uh, Bemar Ipno and Venet Santeno. And at the end of the tasting, clients would usually go like, I think you tasted us on those wines backwards because this particular plot of Pomar et Pneu is all in finesse and elegance and delightful, whereas the Vannaissantneau is way more massive. How would you say that the winemaking, in terms of vinification technique, has evolved since the 80s to now? What really uh, changed over that period of time was the vinification of the reds. And the arrival of Anne in the domain to work with me was capital in that respect. Since the time of the métayage I had with the La France and also the métayage from the Poiriers, I was very much focusing on how to make the best white wine. My focus on the whites unfortunately took the focus off the red, so I wasn't a very good red vinifier at the time. And it took until about 85, 86 for me to really, uh, to really get those wines vinified right. And with the disappearance of the Lafont uh, Métayage looming, 
I thought to myself, I better take care of what I got. <laughs> and I've got a Permicrew Red, and that's Puma Epino. So um, I started to turn my attention to that. And on the guides, there was often written, Pierre Moret, great address for the whites, forget the reds. And after a while, that sort of got to me. So um, at the time, I was very lucky to meet people like Henri Jaillet, who gave me a few uh, pointers rather rapidly, got me on the right tracks. Probably our first really good vintage in red is 88. During Anne's studies, I told her, listen, really try to brush up on the reds because I can give you a few elements on the whites that will be helpful, but the reds are where we really need some help. It's almost impossible today to grow a domain on a family basis because of the pricing of land. So uh, we, we decided that we are going to do our best to produce the best wines that we can produce. My daughter has taken on the flame, and then there's the next generation who's finishing up his school, a couple of years from being out of school and is going to be joining us. And There's some bright future there. Pierre Moray has had three careers, any one of which would be considered extraordinary. Thank you very much for being here today. Je me suis passionné I was pour le métier de... passionate for this life from the moment I knew how to walk. That's what I can remember. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pierre Moray of Domaine Pierre Moray in Merceau, and also Moray Blanc, the micro-negociant, also in Merceau. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. The writings of Clive Coates were helpful to me when I was doing background research for this interview, particularly Coates' book, Cote d'Or, A Celebration of the Great Wines of Burgundy. And I would recommend that book to you if you would like to know more about Pierre Moray. Also, this interview would not have happened without an incredible amount of help from the Wasserman family, particularly Becky Wasserman, who opened her home to me, and to Peter Wasserman, who donated his time to translate this interview with Pierre Moray. I owe huge thanks to the Wasserman family for their support. Anne-Claude Lefebvre told me that 1999 was her personal favorite vintage. And I wonder if you might talk us through some of your favorite vintages over the 20 years that you were there. Je sais pas. Bon, je suis forcément influencé par la mauvaise réputation des vins des années 2000 qui vieillissent mal. Alors forcément influencé par la mauvaise réputation d'oxydation prématurée de, des, des vins actuellement. Bon, moi, j'ai quitté le domaine en 2008 
Et euh, à ce moment-là, je n'avais pas le sentiment qu'il y avait euh, des bouteilles détériorées par, euh, par des mauvaises conservations. Bon. Euh, quelques années après, euh, on a crié à la catastrophe dans beaucoup d'endroits, ou presque. Et euh, je me suis moi-même posé beaucoup de questions, parce que j'étais responsable de la production des millésimes jusqu'à... Alors, le dernier que j'assume complètement en, euh, en responsabilité technique, c'est 2006. Puisque 2007, j'étais là au vendange, mais je n'étais plus là à la mise en bouteille. Et 2008, je n'étais pas là au vendange. Ce qui était peut-être les plus aboutis, effectivement, 99 était peut-être le premier produit par la biodynamie avec euh, tout ce que l'on avait souhaité mettre en place. Oui, donc 2000 et 2001, que j'ai pratiquement épuisé maintenant de, de mes bouteilles, euh, j'aimais personnellement beaucoup. Alors 2002, ben, il commence à y avoir apparemment des, des bouteilles qui vieillissent mal. Euh, je n'en ai pratiquement plus. Euh, mais là, je voudrais faire une différence entre les endroits où sont conservées les bouteilles. Euh, J'ai été amené à une occasion euh, de déguster des, des bâtards 2006 du domaine Le Flève, alors qu'il y avait toute la famille qui était là. Et ces bouteilles étaient dans un état épouvantable. Euh, C'était il y a un an et demi, à peu près. Et euh, on m'a dit que pourtant, ces bouteilles avaient été coravinées euh, euh, quelques jours auparavant, et qu'elles avaient été considérées comme bonnes. Et là, elles étaient euh, complètement, pardon, trépassées. <rire> Et j'avais donc proposé dans la foulée à, au gérant actuel de, de faire une comparaison de, de ce millésime euh, entre les bouteilles qui étaient au domaine Le Flève et les bouteilles qui étaient dans ma cave privée euh, pour essayer d'évaluer s'il n'y avait pas un problème de conservation chez eux. Parce que personnellement, quand je goûtais des vins Le Flève, je n'avais jamais eu auparavant de bouteilles aussi... Euh, oxydée que celle que j'avais euh, eue à, à cette réunion familiale. Alors nous avons fait cette, euh, cette dégustation euh, quelques semaines après et nous, pu, nous avons pu constater qu'il y avait manifestement des écarts de conservation entre euh, la cave Le Flève et la cave Moret. Voilà. Alors pour quelles raisons Je n'en sais rien. Est-ce qu'il y a eu des phénomènes de contamination Est-ce qu'il y a eu... Euh, j'ai cru entendre qu'il y avait eu beaucoup d'appareils d'hygrométrie qui étaient tombés en panne et qui n'avaient pas été restaurés. Et je peux supposer que beaucoup de dégâts viennent de là. Je me souviens d'un mot d'un des dégustateurs qui est là, qui disait « Ah oui, quand même, le fleuve, quand c'est bon, c'est sacrément bon. » La difficulté, c'est d'être bon tout le temps, partout. <rire>